are listening to the Salem Oracle Podcast, a doorway into another dimension of time and space, where we travel back to 1692 to better understand the Salem Witch Trials. I'm your host, Maya Rook. Together, let's peel back the veil and see what it reveals about this infamous, fascinating, and dark piece of our shared history. The Salem Oracle Podcast is an illusory time production and is an accompaniment to the day-by-day chronicles of the Salem Witch Trials on Twitter and Instagram at Salem underscore Oracle. Be sure to follow along for daily updates. Welcome. Today in our exploration of the Salem Witch Trials, we'll take a look back at the last week of the happenings of Salem Village and the surrounding areas So we're looking at about January 25th to the 31st. And since we've really entered into the action now, you can expect every podcast episode will basically be an update on the significant events of the previous week and present an opportunity to really get into more details than we'll have time to do in our day-by-day posts on the Salem Oracle social media accounts. So today, our primary focus is going to be on deepening our understanding of a raid that happens up in York in the District of Maine. But before we get into the details of that event and try to unpack its connection to the Salem Witch Trials, we'll touch briefly on a couple of other happenings over the last week. In our last episode, we started to paint a picture of the Paris household where the initial afflictions of Betty Paris and Abigail Williams began. And these afflictions have not ceased. In fact, reports indicate that they only get worse as the days pass. Something we can consider as we continue to develop this picture of the Paris household is that due to their afflictions, Betty and Abigail cannot perform any of their daily chores. So, hmm, they're afflicted, but lucky them, they can't really participate in everything else that a typical Puritan girl would have to. And so what would that be? Well, Puritan girls would typically assist with tasks of baking, candle making, knitting, spooling, weaving, tending to livestock, and gardening. So they did have a lot that they contributed to the home. And it's likely that their inability for Betty and Abigail to perform such tasks is going to weigh heavily on the household and that it will only continue to be a burden in the coming days, weeks, and months. And we can also remember that these daily afflictions and disruptions take place within the larger context of Salem Village and the province of Massachusetts Bay. So what's happening on this larger scale? Well, on January 26th, the Suffolk County's Quarterly Court holds a meeting and will receive word that Sir William Phipps is now the Captain General and Governor-in-Chief of the province of Massachusetts Bay. Phipps has a pretty remarkable backstory and is going to be very significant in how the trials will unfold. He's going to be responsible in the coming months. In May in particular, he'll appoint the special court of Oyer and Terminer to deal with the witchcraft trial proceedings, which is going to be obviously incredibly instrumental in how the trials unfold. So we'll be returning to William Phipps uh, quite often in the coming months. And I'm actually going to be dedicating an entire members-only bonus video in the coming weeks to exploring his life. So be sure to check that out and look at the membership tiers if that kind of video is of interest to you. We'll be looking at actually like lots of different historical figures. Um, so Phipps is an important part of the larger political context of the colony as it relates to our story. And we're also going to be keeping in mind the local politics happening on the ground level in Salem itself. 
On January 28th, after a lecture at the Salem Village Meeting House, the men all stay after to discuss their committee's petition to separate from Salem Town. And this has been an ongoing negotiation. So earlier in the month of January, a committee made of Nathaniel Putnam, John Putnam Sr., Francis Nurse, Joseph Hutchison Sr., Joseph Porter, and Thomas Flint presented this petition for separating from Salem Town. Uh, But the town itself felt that the committee was not empowered to fully represent the village, and the issue was postponed. The village men meet again on the 28th to negotiate the terms of this petition and decide if they cannot separate completely from the town, they desire to be freed from charges relating only to the town in exchange for maintaining their own roads and caring for their poor. Uh, They do agree that Salem Village will continue to pay all county rates along with the town. So keep this in mind. Next week, we're actually going to return to this discussion of Salem Village and Salem Town and break down their relationship to one another, as well as the tensions that exist between these two communities, why the village want to separate from the town, what's going on there. So we will spend more time on this next week. And on January 29th, in the Northfields area, which is located between the village and town, 80-year-old George Jacobs Sr. dictates his will and determines the terms of inheritance for his children and grandchildren. So he leaves his homestead to his wife, Mary, for the duration of her life. After Mary, the homestead will be passed on to his son, George Jr., and his grandson after George Jr., also named George. Now, if either George Jr. or George III dies, the land will be passed on to George Sr.'s daughter, Anne, and her husband, John Andrews. Other items were bequeathed to grandchildren, such as George Jr.'s daughter, Margaret, receiving some of the household goods and a milk cow. Now, George Jacobs Sr. may be dictating his will. He is 80 years old, and he does need the help of two walking sticks to get around, but he's still quite active and actually known for being a bit domineering. George Jacobs Sr. will appear again in the coming months, along with his servant, Sarah Churchill, so you can keep their names in mind. And now, on to our main focus for today's episode, the raid on York, Maine. You might wonder, What does Maine have to do with what will happen during the Salem Witch Trials? Maya, are you just trying to talk about Maine because you live there now? Uh, Well, yeah, in some ways. I am a little more interested in the Maine connections because it is my home now, and I, of course, want to learn more about the local and state history. But I promise you, Maine is significant to our story. And many scholars actually believe that the raid that occurs in late January in New York is one of the triggers of the trials. So... Let's see what happens. On the snowy evening of January 24, 1692, about 50 miles north of Salem, approximately 300 French and Wabanaki descend upon the village of York, Maine. In the early light of January 25th, they attack. It's estimated that anywhere from 50 to 100 villagers were killed, and approximately 80 were taken hostage and then marched north to Canada. The attackers also burn buildings, destroy most of the village, slaughter animals, and sweep the surrounding areas. One account describes images of pillars of smoke and the raging of the merciless flames as the sounds of insultations of the heathen enemy shooting, hacking, and dragging away others filled the air. Warfare is brutal, and this wasn't an isolated incident. It takes place in the midst of King William's War, which lasted from 1688 to 1699, 
and it is the second of the French and Indian Wars, sometimes also called the Anglo-Abenaki Wars, that were fought intermittently in North America from the late 1680s to 1673. So as some background, this region we're talking about had been settled by the English decades prior, and in 1652 it was absorbed into the province of Massachusetts Bay and renamed York. At this point, officials wanted to push the District of Maine's frontier boundaries further north beyond Casco Bay. However, New France, in present-day Canada, claimed Maine as well. And instances of war between the French and, of course, their Wabanaki allies and the English began in the 1680s in these regions. So this particular raid in 1692 was led by Chief Matakawanda Asachum in the Penobscot Band of Wabanakis, and Father Louis-Pierre Turi, who was a liaison between the French and their allies. And this attack was not a complete surprise. Uh, Reverend Shubal Dummer, founder of York's first parish congregational church 30 years prior, in fact, this was the oldest church congregation in Maine, had previously resisted warnings to leave the village. Cotton Mather will write about this in 1699. He says, Though solicited with many temptations to leave his place, when the clouds grew thick and dark in the Indian hostilities and was like to break upon it, Dummer chose rather with a paternal affection to stay amongst those who had been so many of them converted and edified by his ministry. And Dummer will be one of the more significant deaths of this raid. He was one of the first to be killed. It's said that he was shot as soon as he left his door and that his body was stripped of clothing and mutilated by the attackers. Captain John Floyd of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, will hear of the raid and rush over with a small militia to York only to discover he's too late. He sees instead the aftermath of the massacre and destruction of buildings, and they will bury 48 people in a mass grave along with an unrecorded number of small children. Sometimes this is called the Candlemas Massacre because of when it occurred, and a memorial plaque does stand for this event today in the village of York in Maine. Shortly after the attack, news will make its way down to the people of Boston and, of course, the surrounding areas like Salem Village, And news of such warfare was sure to frighten residents, and for some, especially those with first-hand experience of captivity, this news is surely terrifying. For example, the 17-year-old Mercy Short in Boston had survived captivity from a previous attack, and later she will become one of the afflicted girls during the witch trials. So Boston, as well as other villages and towns in this region, were already home to refugees from early hostilities of King William's War and King Philip's War that had taken place in the 1670s. And similarly, after the raid on York and issues that will follow, people will continue to flee these northern areas and head south to more established regions seeking safety. Mercy Short won't be the only afflicted person in the Boston and Salem area who was a refugee from such warfare, like the one at York and earlier conflicts. Some of the afflicted girls witnessed bloodshed firsthand and were orphaned after their families were massacred. Now, this isn't the case for Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, though it's pretty sure they would have heard stories about warfare, but it will be the case for some of the girls who become afflicted later. So we can consider this question, could this larger culture and experience of war heightened the fears or triggered PTSD among survivors 
and contributed to their likelihood of becoming afflicted once the witch hysteria explodes in the coming weeks and months. Kathleen Kennedy, a historian of gender and American cultural history, writes, Frontier wars were cataclysmic events in which survivors returned to metropolitan centers with unresolved traumas that threatened the meanings attributed to those wars by cultural authorities. The grief and trauma experienced by survivors of the Indian wars were not easily contained by Puritan mourning rituals or dictates. So ministers and others can basically say all they want to rationalize the warfare or make a message about it from God, but the people who experienced it themselves will make their own meaning or find a lack of meaning in it. They will have great trauma and grief to process, and that could manifest in many different ways. So perhaps as afflictions, perhaps as fear of others. On January 27th, about 10 miles from York in Wells, Maine, George Burroughs, a former minister of Salem Village, receives news from two Abenaki men that the English will be able to ransom the captives from the recent attack in two weeks at Sagadahawk. Now, a little side note here, I actually live in Sagadahawk County in Maine. I'm not sure with this event when Sagadahawk is referenced here, like where the exact location would have been, but I imagine I have to be somewhere in the approximate area. So that's kind of interesting. Maybe I can track down where that actually happens, um, because we'll be returning to this, of course, in the coming weeks. But in any case, Burroughs, when he receives this news, will write about it and then send it south to Massachusetts. In this correspondence, he writes of the sorrowful tidings in York and comments that God is still manifesting his displeasure against this land, He who formerly hath set to his hand to help us doth even write bitter things against us. So in general, the Puritans perceived these instances of warfare as evidence of their results of backsliding into sin and God's displeasure with them, and that he was sending them a message. So they better listen. Now, when Burroughs sat down to write this letter, he would have had no idea at this point that in Salem Village, in his former home that was now occupied by the Paris family, the two young girls were suffering from grievous and mysterious afflictions and fits, but he will find out soon enough. And even as the former minister of Salem Village, living all the way up in the District of Maine, he will not be able to escape the witch hysteria that will soon grow. But for now, his concern is the recent attack on York and whether God is pleased or displeased with the settlers. We also have a glimpse into the experiences of the captives. On January 31st, according to Cotton Mather's 1699 publication, Decennium Leucosum, The Remarkables of a Long War with Indian Savages, his words, not mine, Uh, Those taken captive who were now in Canada watched as one of their captors dressed in the clothes of the late Reverend Shubal Dummer and parodied a sermon. Mather writes, As many of them as were in that captivity endured this, among other anguishes, that on the next Lord's Day one of the Tawnies chose to exhibit himself unto them, a devil as an angel of light, in the clothes whereof they had stripped the dead body of this their father a.k.a. Reverend Dummer. So this raid on York, the deaths and the captivities of the people of this village, the destruction of the buildings, the slaughter of the animals, 
It was an instance of war and bloodshed that will ripple throughout the province of Massachusetts Bay, and it does contribute to the underlying fear and concerns of the people of Salem Village, who are also just witnessing the very first instances of strange afflictions that will soon grow and spread to others. So we might not immediately see a direct connection between the reality of war and the fear of witchcraft, but there is a link here, and we will return to it again and again in our discussion of the trials. The raid in York is one of many instances, but in the context of Salem, we can see it as a spark. Emerson Baker, who is an excellent historian of the Salem witch trials, recently commented on this event, saying that in terms of warfare of this era, the 1704 Deerfield raid gets all the attention, but the 1692 raid on York was about as destructive and may have been more significant. The death of Reverend Dummer and many others in a safe coastal community is considered one of the triggers of the Salem witch trials. And the war in which this raid took place, known today as King William's War, and to the people of this era it would have been called the Second Indian War, as historian Mary Beth Norton writes, it placed the residents of Essex County near the front lines of an armed conflict that today is little known, but which at the time commanded their lives and thoughts. So commanded their lives and thoughts. That is not a small statement. Norton asserts it was a dominant factor in their day-to-day lives, how they perceived themselves, others, their place in the world, right? So if you're interested, that excerpt does come from Norton's 2002 book, In the Devil's Snare, The Salem Witchcraft Crisis of 1692, where she makes some real groundbreaking connections between warfare of this era and the witch trials of Salem. So I highly recommend this book and pretty much just everything else that Mary Beth Norton has written And we'll actually be taking a deep dive into the secondary source in the February Devil's Mark newsletter for members, which is going to be released very soon. So thank you so much for listening today. I hope this gives you a little more context for what is happening at this moment in time, late January 1692, and some things to think about as we continue to consider that the witch trials were not their own isolated event, but that they were very much influenced by other things happening during this era, particularly warfare. So on next week's episode, we'll turn our attention once again to Salem Village itself and learn more about what the village was like, as well as differences between Salem Village and Salem Town. And we'll also continue to meet historical figures that will be significant in the unfolding of events like Sarah Good, who will pay an unwelcome visit to the Paris household in early February. As a reminder, our next virtual event is Wednesday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Witch Cakes and Poppets, the Folk Magic of Salem. Uh, This is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to learn the origins of folk magic traditions that were practiced in 17th century New England. We'll explore how they come into play during the Salem Witch Trials, and we will even practice a form of divination together. So if you want to attend that, information for registration for this event and for others can be found at illusorytime.com slash tickets, or you can go on my Salem Oracle Instagram bio and click around on the links there and you can find your way to it. And it will be a really busy week here for Salem Oracle. So that February Devil's Mark newsletter for members is going to be released tomorrow. We've got a sweet bonus episode for members coming this Wednesday, bonus podcast episode where I'm going to dive into the details of Tichiba's life, who's one of the most fascinating 
and definitely one of the most misunderstood figures of the Salem Witch Trials, and we'll be creating some exclusive video content for members as well. So if you are interested in going deeper into the trials, becoming a member, be sure to go to illusorytime.com slash Salem Oracle and check out the membership tier options. Uh, this support is just really vital to the Salem Oracle project and it keeps things moving around here. And another great way to support the Salem Oracle project and this podcast would be to rate and to review the podcast wherever you listen. I know there are options to do so on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify. So just please take a moment to leave a written review, to rate the podcast, to subscribe, all that good stuff. This is a new podcast and it's just getting off the ground. So this kind of support really makes a difference in helping me to reach more people. All right. Be sure to also share the Salem Oracle Instagram and Twitter accounts with anyone who might be interested in daily updates on the trials so we can keep building this community. All right. Thank you once again for listening. Be well, and I will see you all next week as we continue our journey back to 1692. The Salem Oracle Podcast is an Illusory Time production, hosted by Maya Rook, theme music by Just Milk. Follow along with the day-by-day account of the Salem Witch Trials at Salem underscore Oracle on Twitter and Instagram. Find out more about this project, become a member, and check out upcoming virtual events at illusorytime.com slash Salem Oracle. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take the time to rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends so we can bring more people along on this journey back to the dark days of 1692.